is a type of substance primarily used for pain relief purposes, as it binds to a person's opioid receptors, triggering an often pleasurable, pain-dimming effect. The term opioid comes from the older term opiate, which itself is derived from the plant, the opium poppy, which produces a type of latex that, when refined into a resin, can produce morphine. There are a bunch of natural opioids, including morphine, but this term also applies to synthetic substances that act on the same receptors, often with amplified outcomes, compared to their natural equivalents. The ones we can make in laboratories tend to be a lot more refined and focused, and therefore potent, than their natural peers. Some synthetic opioids, like codeine, are included in drugs like cough syrup, while other opioids require prescriptions. And the former, weaker variants are typically capable of reducing mild amounts of pain or helping with coughs, though some earlier studies showing that these opioids were solid cough suppressants have not replicated in more modern studies, so the jury is still out on that use case. While the latter, more potent opioids are optimized to target medium and higher grade pain, like that experienced by chronic pain sufferers or the sort of pain you might have after suffering burns or surgery. Even milder opioids are being kept behind the counter and only available for limited sale at times, and in some cases, the sales are even tracked by the government because of the side effects inherent in this category of drug. One major side effect, and arguably the most pressing one, is that opioids can be highly addictive, users of any amount potentially developing a physical dependence on the drug because of our body's tendency to develop a tolerance to its effects. So you might be given a prescription for a low dose of an opioid painkiller to help you deal with back pain after a car accident, but after not too long, that same dose doesn't do as much for you as it used to. You've developed a tolerance for that quantity. So maybe you start taking a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and the same thing keeps happening. After not too long, you are suffering intense pain and not able to focus, not able to work or go about your day as normal, as a happy, not depressed person, because of the intense pain that you can't seem to get rid of. Over time, this can turn into a dependence, and then an addiction, with a decently high dose of opioids required just to keep you at the basic default level of functionality. It's still pleasurable, in a sense, but it's also just necessary, those high doses, just to get a foundational, non-depressed, non-low, non-sleepy, and uncomfortable, and itchy, non-constipated state. Unfortunately, alongside other adverse effects of taking such substances, like sedation and nausea, and a tendency to fall over periodically, opioids can also kill at high enough doses. Opioids are not like other painkillers, which can build up in a particular organ, causing organ toxicity. Instead, they can lead to what is called respiratory depression, which basically means dying of a CO2 buildup and an inability to get enough non-CO2 gases into one's system. This is part of why the opioid epidemic the U.S. has been suffering through for years has been so devastating. Even people who survive a brush with opioid-caused death can sometimes face lifelong consequences, including permanent brain damage from a lack of oxygen to the brain. 
What I'd like to talk about today is another substance that has been gaining traction as a partial solution to the issues surrounding the opioid epidemic and how it's possible near-future over-the-counter availability could help turn the tide of the worst opioid addiction outcomes in some areas. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Quartz, and it's entitled, The U.S. May Make Anti-Overdose Drug Naloxone Available Over-the-Counter in 2024. Fentanyl is an opioid that was first made in Belgium in 1959 as part of a larger effort to identify potential opioids, and it was mostly used in those early days as a component of fentanyl citrate, which was used as a general anesthetic from 1968 onward. In the mid-1990s, a patch that used a type of alcohol-based gel to slowly administer drugs over a period of two to three days was developed, and this led to the production of fentanyl patches, which were released shortly before a fentanyl lollipop, these two administration methods becoming go-to options for delivering pain-reducing opioid effects to patients steadily over time, in the case of the patch, and all at once, in the case of the lollipop. Other delivery methods were developed later, like the 2009 dissolvable film that was applied to the inside of a patient's cheek, slowly releasing different dosages of fentanyl over time, primarily for pain management use in cancer patients. But whatever its dosage and use case, fentanyl has been a controlled substance in most countries that control such things since the mid to late 20th century. And those controls are the result both of knowledge about how potent this drug is and how easily it can cause serious damage, including opioid overdoses to those who take it, and knowledge of earlier epidemics like the one that Estonia has been suffering through since mid-2000, when a year-long opium poppy ban in Afghanistan, which produced about 90% of the world's heroin supply at the time, led to a global shortage of the drug, which in turn led to a period of watered-down street drugs for folks in the wealthier world and heightened black market use of buprenorphine, an opioid commonly used to treat heroin addiction, in parts of the Middle East and Asia, like Pakistan and India, alongside a few northern countries like Finland. But in Estonia, those other options didn't take off, and it's thought that was because of the country's geographic adjacency and strong cultural and business ties with St. Petersburg, Russia, where fentanyl labs were popping up all over the place. So Estonian heroin addicts, of which there were many relative to other populations in the region, were scooped up by these Russian organized crime-run opioid manufacturers as new customers. Estonia has thus served as a sort of preview for what other countries like the U.S. would deal with in the coming decade, as their citizens were six times as likely to die from drug overdoses compared to other Europeans, and a slew of drug-borne illnesses like HIV began to spread a lot faster as well, because fentanyl was so fast-acting and thus required more injections to keep users stable. A bunch of labs and distributors were shut down in Estonia in 2017, and a whole lot of the drug, and analogs of the drug, was confiscated by law enforcement. This led to a surge in the use of other drugs, and though some analysts expected heroin use to boom as well, reports from local drug agencies suggest that this wasn't the case. Opioid addicts who'd used fentanyl, which was much stronger than heroin, just couldn't go back. 
the natural stuff was just too weak to give them a high or to even keep their withdrawal symptoms at bay. In recent years, there's been something of a moral panic related to fentanyl in the United States. A 2020 paper published in the International Journal on Drug Policy details how misinformation about the drug, in particular about how casual exposure to it can cause addiction or even kill, has been spread widely by folks on social media and by people in the mainstream news industry. This, the authors of the paper contend, has led to incredibly and overly punitive drug laws, wasteful government expenditures, and the curtailing of access to vital pain drugs for people who truly need them. Now, the counterpoint to this is that while, yes, it's nonsensical to build fentanyl up into some kind of monster lurking under everyone's bed and to overplay the idea that mere skin contact with the drug will lead to an overdose, most of the conspiracy theories and misinformation relate in some way to this concept, which does not seem to be true. Though it is recommended that you wash with soap and water and not touch your face or eat anything until you have washed up after coming into contact with the stuff to avoid ingesting it. But all those scare stories about touching fentanyl and becoming an addict or dying immediately are not helpful for anything except stimulating more viewership and clicks. This substance is not safe to use outside a controlled medical context, but it's not some kind of Soviet-era assassination toxin. Now that said, it can be hundreds of times more potent than heroin which itself was already capable of pulling even very careful and responsible people into lifelong addictions. So it's not a monster, but fentanyl is not a cute little puppy dog either. The substance mentioned in the headline of that Quartz article, naloxone, is the generic name of a drug usually sold with a prescription as Narcan or Cluxado. The only difference between the two being that Cluxado devices come with 8 milligrams of the drug while Narcan comes with half that just four milligrams. Naloxone was first approved in the United States in 1971, and it functions by binding to the same opioid receptors that opioids bind to, which then reverses about 99% of all opioid-related overdoses. This drug has been used by medical professionals who inject it into an overdosing patient's veins for decades, though the more recent nasal spray version, which doesn't work as fast as the intravenous version, five minutes compared to just two, but which is more usable by non-medical professionals, is available with a prescription and has been helping non-medical professionals prevent overdoses and deaths since the mid-1990s. Folks who get prescriptions are often either addicts themselves or people close to addicts, like their parents, their partners, their friends. And there are quite a few rules on the books that allow people to get this drug at pharmacies via standing orders from physicians, which in practice has made it a pseudo-over-the-counter drug in 42 states and Washington, D.C. in the United States, and in several other countries as well. Though the application of these rules, since they are casual rules, are hit and miss, depending on where you live. If someone overdoses and you can get them this drug quickly, though, that could save their lives. So there are often free training programs that teach people how to use this drug available in places all over the world. It's a pretty big success story within an otherwise fairly grim opioid epidemic narrative.
Cloxado, the version of this drug with the double dosage, was approved in 2021 by the FDA because higher doses were needed to help people ODing on fentanyl, which again is a lot more potent than most other opioids. The usual way of handling fentanyl overdoses up till this point has been just a double hit of Narcan, which helped contribute to a supply shortage in 2021. And Narcan already ranges in price from about $60 for the injectable version to more than $160 for the nasal spray. So the price increases that started popping up during that shortage made the necessity for a double dose even more alarming for folks who rely upon, or might come to rely upon, this drug. Fortunately, as mentioned in that quartz piece, the version of naloxone that's being fast-tracked by the FDA for over-the-counter approval is made by a nonprofit pharma company called Harm Reduction Therapeutics, and its product, called Revive, will be sold in its nasal spray form either very cheaply or, whenever they're able, it will be given away for free. That's kind of this company's whole purpose. So the fact that they are moving in on this generically available but still relatively expensive drug has been heartening for folks operating in this space and to have continuously suffered from the high costs of acquiring this drug in any quantity. That said, the Revive version of this drug won't be available until 2024 at the soonest. And in the meantime, some people and organizations are criticizing the production and distribution of this drug as basically an enabler of continued addiction. The idea being that folks would learn the error of their ways and work harder to get off drugs or simply die of their own mistakes, freeing up public resources for things that are not lost causes if they weren't continuously saved by people who give them Narcan or another equivalent at the right moment after they've pushed themselves beyond the point of naloxone-less survival. Other criticisms have been related to the maker of the Narcan version of this drug, pointing out that they are incredibly litigious toward companies that try to make generic, less expensive versions of naloxone, and that their marketing materials and pricing schemes are, let's say, questionable. This drug was available at $1 per dose a decade ago, and industry insiders have said that a dose based on production expenses should only cost about a nickel today. But the price has been massively fluffed by the company as the opioid epidemic has taken off, and they seem to have kept those prices artificially high and over-the-counter versions artificially unavailable, mostly by glad-handing relevant officials and threatening to sue anyone who steps too close. All of which is to say, we may soon see a cheap or free version of this drug available in an easy-to-use device, which could help save a lot of lives. But there are still concerns that this is a bandage, not a solution, and that the real problem, opioid addictions and the many social, economic, and healthcare-related issues that cause them, is not being addressed. <music> book I'd like to recommend today is called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone by Sarah Jaffe. This book fundamentally reinforces and reinforces and reinforces the thesis statement that we are taught 
culturally to commit ourselves to our jobs more than our jobs because of the nature of businesses and how they're set up and the way that capitalism works could ever be committed to us. That's kind of what most of the book keeps coming back to. But that argument is made very well, very convincingly, and at times in anger-inducing ways, for me at least, over the course of this book with example after example after example of why it's probably a good idea to, for lack of a better way of saying this, look out for number one, take care of yourself when you are considering your career prospects, rather than thinking about your work as an extension of your personal life, your personality, or your worthiness as an individual. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Work Won't Love You Back by Sarah Jaffe. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can check out a couple of my other podcasts if you're keen to. I've got another news-focused one called One Sentence News, which goes out every weekday. And then I have one that's focused on the many and varied variables that distort the way that we see the world called brain lenses. And you can find those wherever you get this podcast. You can also feel free to say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and just Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm